weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Our passage for today is Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because the evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa Joppa, and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, who is to blame for this trouble we're in? What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah, and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You ever had the thought that when it comes to your relationship with God, wouldn't it be great if God could just speak to me personally? If you ever, maybe perhaps to a non-Christian who tells you, I would believe in God if he would show himself to me like he did in Bible times, but 
He just seems so far away, I'm not even sure if he exists at all. Sometimes it's a good desire. Sometimes it's just an excuse for not believing the things that we know God has written in his word. Well, imagine if God did show up in your life, in your week. He showed up before you and told you something that you didn't want to hear. What if God spoke to you personally and told you the last thing that you wanted to hear? What happened then? Well, in our passage today, in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah experiences the voice of God. He has God speak to him directly and personally. Jonah, a prophet of God, receives a message from God, and it's a message he does not want to hear, and a message he does not want to give. And Jonah, as the title of our sermon puts it, runs from God. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Or... Uh, it looks like there's one book left. If you haven't grabbed one yet, grab it now. We'll try to, oh, there's two left. We'll try to buy some more before next week. We are taking a break from our regular series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We just finished 1 Corinthians chapter 10, section on Christian liberty. And we're putting a pause on this before we return to consider what Paul teaches there in 1 Corinthians on how it is the churches should conduct their public gatherings in ways that honor him and build up the body of Christ. That's chapters 11 to 14. Gives me some time to figure out my view on the gifts. It allows us as well to visit another part of God's word. We're going to take some time visiting two of the minor prophets. We're going to look at Jonah for the next three weeks this week and two weeks after. And we're going to look at Habakkuk over three weeks as well. And that will get us through at least July. Let's be praying that as we Spend some time in another part of God's word that the whole counsel of God would be at work among us, building us up, helping us to understand the things that we need to understand and helping us know how to apply it here as a church. Well, our main point, if you're taking notes, uh, the main point from the text is this. The prophet refuses to preach mercy to his enemies, and yet God is merciful to him too. The prophet refuses to preach mercy to his enemies, and yet God is merciful to him too. God is often more merciful than we want him to be, and yet our very souls depend on it. It's my prayer that we'd be encouraged to reflect on God's mercy to sinners like us and develop his heart of mercy for others too. Now as we work our way through the text, usually I do sermon points. I'm not going to do sermon points today. I'm going to do plot points. And to help us keep our attention, I'm going to alliterate them. They're all going to be ours today. My dad used to alliterate his sermons, and I thought it was cheesy, and yet here I am following in his footsteps. I think it helps it be a little more memorable. Point number one in terms of plot points, we have the recruit there in verse one. God comes to recruit his prophet, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai. It says, who is Jonah? Well, Jonah is... A prophet we know from one other reference, 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25. There it says that he was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, the king of Israel in Samaria. So Jonah was a prophet in the northern empire, the ten tribes in the north that had their... Um, their capital in Samaria, who had split off from the two southern tribes, that of Judah and Benjamin. 
Now it says that during his reign, Jeroboam did what was evil in the Lord's sight, verse 24 of 2 Kings 14. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. But despite his being wicked, it says he restored Israel's border from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai from Gath Hefer. So that reference helps us to know when it was in the 700s that Jonah was ministering as a prophet. And it lets us know that he was a successful prophet. In that through his prophecies, the Lord expanded the borders of Israel. And he was able to see success happen in his lifetime for the nation of Israel. Seems that this would be something Jonah would be excited about. His own nation succeeding, his own borders expanding. So this is who this recruit is. Jonah, son of Amittai, a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel before... Assyria came to steal those tribes and bring them to Assyria. This is before uh, the exile of those northern tribes. Now, secondly, we have the revelation. So the recruit, Jonah, the revelation, verse 2. What is the revelation that he brings to Jonah? Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up. And go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. What is the revelation that the Lord gives? Well, it's unique. He tells him to not simply preach against this pagan empire. He doesn't tell them simply to preach against this wicked nation, something that many of the prophets did. He tells him to do something unique. He tells him to go to Nineveh, to go to Assyria and to preach judgment to the nation of Assyria. Now, who is the recipient's third plot point of this revelation? Well, it's Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The recipients of this revelation are the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians are those that would come and exile the northern tribes according to God's plan in another generation. But he, God, is telling his prophet Jonah to actually travel north behind enemy lines to the capital city of the enemies of Israel and to preach a message of judgment to that city. Now, this is shocking, first of all, because of who it is that this message is going to. It's shocking that God would want to warn these wicked people about their evil. And you'll see shortly, this is why Jonah gets angry and refuses to go. He knows that in an offer of, sorry, that in a message of judgment, there is with it an offer of mercy. One writer says about the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian empire was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories gloating of whole plains littered with corpses and cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor, Shalmaneser III, is known for depicting torture, dismembering, and even decapitations of his enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. These people 
were cruel and wicked. And they were at this time the enemies of Israel threatening these northern tribes. Those that survived, another, uh, the same writer writes, the destruction of their cities would then be fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Syrians have been called by another writer, a terrorist state. Now the empire had already begun exacting heavy tribute from Israel during this time, during the reign of King Jehu, the generation before Jonah, and continued to threaten the Jewish northern kingdom throughout the lifetime of Jonah until eventually the next generation it would be invaded, destroyed, Israel and its capital city of Samaria destroyed. Yet it was this nation that was the object of God's missionary outreach. So we have the recruit, Jonah, the revelation, preached judgment to the nation of Assyria in their capital, Nineveh. The recipients, the Assyrians in the capital city of Nineveh. Now we have the reaction from Jonah. What's his reaction? Well, it's comical. Don't fail to miss the comedy that's here in the book of Jonah. The writer of the book of Jonah is highlighting comedy here. And he's also, as we're going to see, highlight irony. There's much irony throughout this book. But look at the reaction. What does God's recruit do? He runs away. The recruit retreats. Why? Is he fearful for his life? Is he afraid that if he goes up to Assyria and preaches there in Nineveh that they're going to kill him? No, he's not afraid of that. Chapter 4 makes that clear. Jonah, why does he react this way? Why does he run away, retreat from this recruitment? Because he knows that even a message of judgment carries with it an offer of mercy and an opportunity for repentance. And Jonah hates the Assyrians so much, doesn't believe that they deserve mercy. He refuses to be any part of it. So what's he do? He runs away. Another R, he rebels. Look at Jonah's rebellion here, beginning in verse 3. Tells him to arise and go. Jonah got up. And he went, but the wrong direction. He flees to Tarshish, it says. It says that he does this from the Lord's presence, which is a comedic line, as you'll see, because you cannot get away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, the opposite direction, and as far as you could go in the other direction in the known world. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Jonah rebels. Why does he do this? He does this because of deep-seated resentment. He does this because of deeply held hatred. And he does this because he disagrees with God. And he does this because he thinks that he knows better than God. An illustration of this. We uh, adopted a dog. We adopted a rescue a year and a half ago. Bubbles. Bubbles is a sweet dog. She was super fearful for most of those early months, but now she's quite proud, and every day she thinks she knows better than us. Every day she shows us how much she thinks she knows better than us. Every day. She comes to me at the time she thinks it's the right time for a walk and comes and stares at me, glares at me, gives me these looks. 
She also, at times, tries to run out of the house to get into the car because she wants to come with us, even if she knows that it's not a trip that she can come on. We recently took a weekend up at Big Bear, and every time we turned around, Bubbles was trying to hop into the van with us because she wanted to come with us to Big Bear. And she saw us packing and knew we were going to leave and was convinced we were going to try to leave without her. She kept trying to jump into the car. Bubbles thinks she knows better than us. She shows it. She refuses to go on walks with our kids because she thinks she's higher in the pecking order in our family than the kids. She will not go unless it's Bev or me. She'll just sit there and refuse to go. She knows better. I can't be, I can't be trusting these, these little puppies. But how often are we like our little dog, Bubbles? We think we know better than God, don't we? We experience things and we believe that God has done something wrong putting us in this situation. Or we think that God is wrong to not exact judgment on the people we think deserve it. Or we think that we deserve mercy when others don't. We think that we know better than God. Now, Jonah here, I think, demonstrates that it isn't simply knowledge of God that is the most important thing for God's people. It's not the most important thing for us as Christians. Paul Tripp, in his really helpful book called Dangerous Calling on pastoral ministry, highlights the danger of mistaking biblical knowledge for spiritual maturity. He says this is a big issue in seminaries. People believe because they know some truth about God or have accumulated some theological knowledge that therefore that they are spiritually mature. You see here, Jonah, of everyone and everything in this chapter, has the most knowledge of God, and yet he is the most resistant to God throughout this chapter and throughout this book. <coughs> And friends, it isn't only pastors or even here prophets, for that matter, who can make this mistake. Who can think that some knowledge of God means that they are mature. All Christians have a danger of making this mistake. Of assuming that they know better than God because they know some things about God. And confusing knowing about God with knowing God. And God, out of his love for Jonah, lovingly pursues him. Our sixth R, verses 4 and 5, the rundown. The rundown. I love baseball. Went to a baseball game this week. My beloved Nationals got killed by the Dodgers. And there was, in the game, as there often is, a rundown between the bases. Someone gets caught in between two bases, and then there's a pickle, a rundown. It's that awkward situation where someone knows they're a dead duck, they're going to be tagged out. They're already a goner. It's just a matter of time. How long is it going to take for this out to happen? Well, Jonah is in a rundown with God. God runs him down with a storm, verses 4 and 5. An amazing display of his power. The God of heaven and earth sends a storm to run his prophet down. Look at verse 4. The Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. 
Sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. God of heaven and earth, the omnipresent God, from whose presence you cannot get away from, runs down his prophet with a divinely ordained storm. Psalm 139, the psalmist asked the question, where can I go from your presence? Where can I go from your spirit? If I were to go to the heights of heaven, if I were to go to the depths of the grave, you are there. God demonstrates this on the sea. He is not simply a local deity, as so many of the pagan nations believed that these deities were local deities with little bits of power. No. There is one God, the creator God, and he is everywhere, and he has all authority and all power. And in his love, he brings a divinely ordained storm to pursue Jonah. You see the response of the sailors. They're afraid. And they throw all of their cargo into the sea to lighten the load. You see Jonah's sin has an effect on other people. It affects these sailors. It affects their financial situation. But then look at 7R, 7th R, the big reveal. The captain, starting in verse 6, approaches Jonah. He comes down below. What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. I don't know if you've known sailors, but sailors are difficult people to scare. Yet these sailors are scared. They know that this is an ordinary storm. And they're convinced with their experience that this is something divine, something beyond merely physical. Um, Sailors are not superstitious people. They're usually quite practical people, good at reading the seasons and reading the signs. This is not something that they expected or had experienced before. And they are asking Jonah to call out to his God as they are crying out to theirs, seeking for their very lives to be saved. And they then cast lots to figure out who's at fault here, who's to blame. Like a roll of the dice, the casting of lots brings up the big reveal. No surprises here. Verses 7 and following, Jonah. Proverbs 16 says that a lot is cast in the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. God is clearly highlighting who's to blame here. And they realize it's Jonah, and he gives them some revelation, but he gives them, eighth R, the recourse. What is their recourse? What is the solution to this issue of this divinely ordained storm that is God pursuing his prophet? Well, he says, throw me in. Verse 9, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, what have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And he answered them, pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will be so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. The big reveal. It's Jonah who's at fault. The recourse, throw me in, he says. 
Now, notice here, Jonah would rather die in this storm than take this message of mercy to these people of Assyria, his enemy. Think of how deep the hatred is in his heart. What would cause such a hatred in Jonah's heart and life would cause him to be so cold and hardened that he would rather die than take this message. Now, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us what it is that Jonah has gone through. It may be that some raiding bands or armies of the Assyrian nation had come and killed or harmed people that he knew, maybe members of his own family. It could be that he had a patriotism that was so strong that taking a message of mercy to his enemies just felt un-American. I mean, un-Israelite. What is it that caused such hatred in Jonah's life? Well, we don't know. But whatever it is, it's so strong. It's clear here he would rather die in the ocean than be faithful to obey God in bringing this message to his enemies which he believes should be God's enemies. And he's convinced that they do not deserve mercy, and he wants no part of this mercy being offered. Now what's amazing here is the response of the sailors. Now, imagine if you were a sailor, some rascal shows up running from his God, and it causes you to perhaps lose your boat lose everything in it, and be set back maybe for months or even years financially, how would you respond to a character like this? Well, look at what they do. They pursue every recourse possible before finally obeying Jonah. It says that they don't just throw him in right away. It's amazing to see this kindness from these sailors. They begin to row, it says. But they couldn't, verse 13. Because the sea was raging against them more and more. So then they make a request. That's the ninth R, the request. These hardened sailors pray to Israel's God. Look there, verses 14 and 15. So they called out to the Lord. I love this prayer. Please, Lord, Jonah's God, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood. We're simply doing what he's telling us to do. Don't kill us for having thrown him overboard. Don't charge us with his innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. They know that throwing him into the ocean now would mean certain death. And they don't want to be held responsible for it. And so they make a request to God. These hardened sailors pray. Isn't this wonderful? In God's strange providence, more pagan sailors more people from pagan nations come to hear about Israel's God even through the rebellion of God's prophet who runs away and seeks to get away from the presence of the Lord. A group of sailors come to hear about Israel's God and hear something of him through Jonah. Then they finally do it. Verse 15. They picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea was and the sea stopped its raging. Tenth plot point. Revival. Verse 16, the men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah may be the most successful preacher or prophet in all of redemption history. Everything he touched seemed to turn to gold, even against his own will. These very sailors 
respond well to whatever little revelation they got from Jonah about this God, the God of Israel. They offer sacrifices to him. There's a revival among these sailors because of Jonah's message to them. An unlikely revival. And this successful prophet is not happy in the midst of his success. Finally, we have the rescue, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The fish that all of us raised in Sunday school know about was God's means of rescuing his rebellious prophet, his unmerciful prophet. He rescues him with a fish that he appoints, verse 17. And that word appointed is a theme word. You see him appoint some other things in the chapters to come. Keep an ear and an eye out for it. Uh, and that is this first chapter of Jonah, the first narrative. Do you catch them all? The recruit, Jonah, the revelation, go preach against Nineveh, the recipients, the Assyrians, the reaction, Jonah runs away, the recruit, uh, the recruit retreats. Five, the rebellion. Six, the rundown. Seven, the big reveal. Eight, the recourse. Nine, the request. Ten, the revival. And finally, the rescue. Now, there is comedy here in Jonah chapter one, and we shouldn't miss it. Some good comedy points here. The prophet being called by God, running away from that God, seeking to run away from his presence. It is comedic. And the only person throughout the whole chapter that does not respond rightly to God is Jonah. He's even the only thing that doesn't respond rightly to God. Because not only do the sailors respond rightly, the wind responds rightly, and the fish responds rightly. Think about the illustration of Bubbles, who seems to know better than us. The wind responds rightly to its creator, and so does the fish. And yet, Jonah, the wisest and most knowledgeable, is here the most hardened and the most heart-sick. He's holding on to his hatred to the end. But there's irony here, too. The irony of hardened sailors responding kindly to this prophet and hardened sailors uh, being led to a revival from the little bit of revelation that they received, that it isn't God's people that you see this great revival of religion. Throughout all of Israel's history, we see a stiff-necked people refusing to obey God. And even if they begin to obey God a little bit, it doesn't take long before they turn around and begin rebelling again and even turning to idol worship all throughout all of Old Testament history. And yet here, see the irony of pagan sailors responding well to the message about Israel's God. And the irony of a prophet who knows so much about God, so much that he says, I serve the God who made the heavens and the earth, trying to run away from this God who made the sea and the dry land. He knows who this God is, and yet he's seeking to get away from this God that he knows created all things. But do you see here as well glimpses of the gospel too? Not only is there comedy and irony in this passage, we see glimpses of the gospel too. Glimpses of the gospel... God has always had a plan to 
save not only a people for himself and the nation of Israel, but to save people from many nations. That, that revelation was originally in an encapsulated form found in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives, Genesis 12, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. This was always God's plan, not simply to save the nation of Israel, end of story, but to use Israel to be, as he tells his prophet Isaiah, to be a light for the the nation. Isaiah 49, verse 6 and 7, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One says. This was always His plan. Or Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and His glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to your shining brightness. We see glimpses of the Gospel here in Jonah. As God delights to offer salvation to his enemies, even to the nation of Israel's enemies too. We see here glimpses of what Christ came to do. As Romans 5 puts it so clearly. What did Christ come to do in salvation? Did he come to save good people, righteous people? No, he came to save sinners. He came while we were yet sinners. Christ came to die for the ungodly. See, the gospel message is a message of a holy God pursuing great sinners with lavish love and mercy. Not a love and mercy that is deserved, but when the opposite is deserved. It says there in Romans 5, some might be willing to lay down their life for a good person. But who would be willing to lay down their life for an ungodly person? And yet this is what Christ came to do. God himself, second person of the Trinity, Jesus. He came to save his enemies, to save rebellious sinners, the lavish love and mercy that was not deserved. And yet that glorifies the greatness of his mercy and grace. Here, in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, God is on on a missionary endeavor to bring a message of mercy to the wicked people of Assyria. We have, here in the book of Jonah, not only comedy and irony, and not only glimpses of the gospel, but finally, a serious heart diagnosis that should not be missed. See, Jonah had a big problem, a problem bigger than the Assyrians. It was an issue in his own heart. Jonah was a recipient of God's mercy and grace, and yet he assumed that he deserved it. And he assumed that his people, the nation of Israel, deserved it too. 
And he assumed that these people, these Assyrians, these Ninevites, did not deserve it. The book of Jonah should have been read and should have been processed and believed on by the Israelites in Jesus' day, and yet they had missed it too. The message that Jonah needed to hear was the message that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day needed to hear. You remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 11. The account that was explained by Jesus about these two brothers, the prodigal son. The prodigal son was the son who wasted his father's fortune. That's what prodigal means. To spend and to spend lavishly. He wastes his father's uh, inheritance and that of the older faithful son. Tim Keller, in explaining this parable, wrote a book called The Prodigal God. We tend to think of the word prodigal meaning wayward, but the word prodigal actually means uh, wasting. The prodigal son was the one who wasted that money with loose living and spent it so quickly. That's what prodigal means, to recklessly spend or to lavishly spend. This term, Keller writes, is therefore appropriate for describing not only the first son who wastes the money, but also from the perspective of the second son in describing the father in the story and the way that he relates to his younger son. The father's welcome to the repentant son was literally reckless because he refused to reckon or count the sin of the prodigal son against him or demand repayment. And this response offended the older son and most likely would have offended the whole community. Do you remember why this was written? Because Jesus was spending time with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with people that these Israelites in his day thought did not deserve such time. People that they wouldn't be caught dead around because they thought that they would have a corrupting influence. And yet Jesus spent time with such people because he came to offer a lavish, reckless love, a lavish and reckless mercy to God's enemies of all kinds. What Jonah needed to learn was what we often need to learn, the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember this one too? Servant who owes more than he ever could be able to pay back. Many, many years wages. And what does his master do? Forgives him debt. In the parable, Matthew 18, is the debt of his sin. He then goes out right afterwards and finds somebody after being forgiven Thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million dollars after being forgiven this debt. He finds somebody who owes him a little bit and he demands payment immediately. And when the man will not do it, just a small fraction of what he had owed and been forgiven, he refuses uh, to be patient and he throws this man into prison. See that this is... The heart diagnosis, the serious heart diagnosis that should not be missed in this book and one that we need to look within ourselves as well to see, do we have it also? Some helpful application questions for us as we consider digesting the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Who is it that you refuse to forgive? 
Who is it that you find it impossible to show mercy to? Who is that person in your life? Maybe you need to to write it down. Who is that person that you refuse to pray for? That person that you can't find it in yourself to pray to God to help you to pray for. And if you will not forgive, why not? If you continue to hold on to such hatred, not only will it eat you alive, but it will keep you being able to realize just how merciful God has been to you. Friends, let me encourage us to search our own hearts here and consider ways that we are like Jonah, refusing to extend mercy to others. Friends, let me encourage you there's someone you need to talk to about this to do it we should be the kind of church family in which we can hold each other accountable and be willing to be open and honest about our own sins our own struggles we encourage you to tell someone who is it that you are harboring hatred toward maybe somebody far away maybe somebody from your past it may be somebody close to home it may be someone in your home if you are dealing with hatred lack of forgiveness Your heart is the same heart of Jonah. And while there is comedy in the story, we should not miss the seriousness here. The concern that we might be like Jonah with our hatred and refusal to show mercy to others. Another application for us as Christians, who is it that you might believe is beyond God's mercy in salvation? Or who is it that you believe is not worthy of an offer of the gospel or of God's mercy? Who is it that you think, oh, that person will never believe? Friends, God's mercy is extravagant. But in his sovereignty, he can save the most hardened of sinners. If he can perhaps convert hardened sailors in this passage, do you think he can't save hardened sinners? Friends, let me encourage you. Is there someone in your life that you know you need to share the gospel with, and yet you believe, perhaps like Jonah, they're beyond God's mercy or grace, or you believe they're so hardened that they would never respond? Friends, let me encourage you to put your confidence in the God who made the earth, the seas, and everything in them, and know that in his mercy and grace, he can soften the hardest of hearts. Let me encourage us to be faithful with the gospel and be faithful in sharing the gospel in a a prodigal way lavishly broadly to any that we come across what's behind this in terms of our own hearts and what's behind this in terms of Jonah too what is Jonah's biggest problem he doesn't view himself as an undeserving recipient of God's grace and mercy. He doesn't view himself as John Newton viewed himself, as someone always in need of God's mercy and grace. John Newton, the writer of our final hymn, Amazing Grace, himself was a hardened sailor, and he was himself saved by God's amazing grace in light of having a terrible past past of all kinds of wickedness and sin, which is what eventually caused him to write the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, Saved a Wretch Like Me. Not only was Newton 
wicked himself personally, but he was involved not just in sailing, but in the slave trade. And through his efforts, they were stealing men and women from places in the continent of Africa, selling them into slavery. He was a part of it. And knowing the kind of wickedness that he was a part of caused him always to have a view of himself on a daily basis of the reality that he was a great sinner in need of a great savior. And his knowledge of what it is that God had saved him from caused him to have a habitual tenderness, as one of his biographers writes it. In the way that he related to everyone around him. He had a mercy and grace and tenderness towards those around him. Why? Because one writer put it, a biographer, he believed and felt his own weakness and unworthiness and was ever living upon the grace and pardoning love of his Lord. This gave him an habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit, a knowledge of of the kind of grace and mercy that we've received in Christ caused him to be able to relate to those around him with a tenderness and a grace and a mercy. The, the people that knew him well say with everyone he came across. One of his friends wrote about him, Mr. Newton could live no longer than he could love. Says that his love to people was the signature of his life. It says that this was true of groups of people. This was true of individual people. He loved perishing people and loved to preach the gospel to them. He loved saved people and he loved the members of his flock. As one writer put it, he loved people at first sight. Someone who'd been a recipient of so much grace and mercy when he saw anybody. His response to the grace and mercy that he had received was to see them with. The eyes of love, the eyes of Christ. The eyes of Christ who came to save sinners, to save enemies. Those were the eyes he sought to have when he saw others too. Friends, this should characterize us as Christians. We should, as those that are recipients of God's mercy, have a habitual tenderness. Be able to love people at first sight because we know what it is that we deserve. God's wrath and judgment just as the Assyrians did. Just as the Israelites did. Just as Jonah did. You and I deserve God's wrath and judgment. And yet in Christ, through his remarkable mercy and grace, we have so much more. A relationship with God that will last into eternity. And we have an opportunity, like Jonah, to be a part of God's ministry of mercy to others. Well, friends, as we study the book of Jonah, I hope that we'll realize it's not just a story about a resistant prophet and a remarkable fish. It's a revelation of the surprising mercy of God toward the nations, toward enemies, toward Jonah's enemies, toward his people's enemies. It's also an account of God's relentless pursuit of his prophet. God pursues Jonah with mercy and love. He rescues him with a fish. And he does this for Jonah's good. And I pray in this series that it will be for our good as well. Let's go to this God of mercy in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are a merciful God. At times you are more merciful than we wish you could be. And yet we 
know that apart from such lavish mercy, we would be hopeless. Lord, we pray that we would grow as a people to recognize the mercy that we've received and that this would cause us to show such mercy to those around us. Lord, give us grace to do this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.